Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, we once again come before thee. We thank thee for the reading of thy word, singing of hymns and psalms, O Lord. Lord, may thou use that work which we have already experienced this afternoon to further till our hearts, prepare us for the preaching of thy word. God, may thy son, Jesus Christ, be lifted on high. May we be people who rely upon thy Holy Spirit for all things in our life, O God. For without thee, we can do nothing. Lord, we lift thy Son up, and we bow before him, and we ask, O Jesus, that thou wouldst be our treasure, thou wouldst be our great joy, Lord, that thou wouldst give us thirst for thee, that we might have more of Christ, more hunger for Christ, more love for Christ, more service to Christ. God, help thou me by the power of the Holy Spirit to exposit thy text accurately and faithfully. Lord, that I might be but a mouthpiece. That thou would convict our hearts. Thou would encourage our hearts. And thou would give us grace and power to live this Christian life. We commit this time now to Thee, our triune God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first 13 verses. This Lord's Day, we are turning to the Gospel of Mark to begin an exposition, dear congregation, that will last anywhere from 35 to 45 weeks, depending. The Gospel of Mark is unlike any other gospel of the other four gospels, in that it focuses primarily on the acts and the deeds of Jesus Christ rather than on his sayings, i.e. like Matthew and Luke, or on plumbing the depths of his divine person like the gospel of John does. Although Mark doesn't neglect these, he just simply has a different spin on it. Mark is by far the shortest gospel, It's the most abrupt gospel with the word immediately or straightway in the King James appearing over and over and over again. Some people have said that if you were to sit and read the gospel of Mark in one sitting, that you should be exhausted by the time you're done with how much you see immediately, immediately, immediately. But even though it is the shortest gospel, it's not simply an abridgment of Matthew or Luke or John. For it lays out richly, and by divine inspiration, and by graphic language, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. One commentator put it this way, quote, St. Mark has the special gift of terse brevity and of graphic painting and wonderful combination, while on every occasion he compresses the discourses, works, 
and history into the simplest possible kernel, he, on the other hand, unfolds the scenes more clearly than St. Matthew does, who excels in the discourses of Christ. Not only do single incidences become in his hands complete pictures, but even when he is very brief, he often gives with one pencil stroke something new and peculiarly his own. What then do we know about the Gospel of Mark? Who wrote it? When did that person write it? And why? The tradition of church history has, since the early 2nd century, attributed the gospel to John Mark, who was a disciple of the Apostle Peter, and who likely wrote this gospel under Peter's oversight. It was likely penned anywhere from AD 45 to AD 68 for the church in Rome. That was the occasion. There are, these are merely good estimates. Because the text does not tell us, we simply do not know for sure who wrote it, when, or why. Though we have no reason to doubt church tradition at this point, in my opinion. What we can be sure of is that the gospel of Mark put before us is a divinely inspired account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. From verse 1, chapter 1, all the way to the end of verse 16 or of chapter 16, and that this book is therefore profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now let us read the first 13 verses. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, first 13 verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, And they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a girdle of skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet, of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan. And was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Let's notice three points in our text. Number one, John the Baptist's person and work. Number two, Jesus Christ baptized by John the Baptist. Number three, Jesus Christ, the greater Adam. First, John the Baptist's person and work. Verses 1 through 8 lays that out. The gospel of Mark begins with the life of Jesus. 
shortly before the start of his public ministry. Rather than with his birth, as does Matthew and Luke, or with his pre-existence in eternity like John. Mark gets straight to the point. He gets straight to setting Jesus Christ before our eyes, and for that, we can most certainly be thankful. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He gets right into it. The gospel, meaning good news, as we know, in Greek, coming straight over from Greek, the good news of Jesus Christ. His person and work. The work of Jesus Christ. The divine Son of God is the gospel. If we don't have Christ in our message, if we don't lift up Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done, we have no gospel, we have no message, and thus we have no church. If there be a church so-called that does not uplift Christ in every message, does not lift up Christ in all they do, they are no church, and they have no gospel. Without Jesus, we have no good news. Without Jesus, we only have certain and drab expectation of judgment and hell for our sins, which we have deserved. Acts 4.12 tells us, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Jesus himself said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If we leave Christ out of our message, if he is not central to our preaching and our living, then we have stepped out of the way of Christianity. But here before us, in verses 2 through 8, we have the history of John the Baptist also. He of whom the Lord Jesus spoke in John 5.35, Jesus said this about John, he was a burning and shining light. John was nothing else but a signpost a signpost that pointed to Jesus Christ. His ministry was to prepare the way, our text says, for the Lord Jesus Christ. To prepare the Lord Jesus Christ's way for his work, his ministry. John knew that life was not in himself. He did not have life. He did not have salvation. But that he was merely a herald for the Lord who was to come. John knew that he came... For a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe, and that he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. It's found in John chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Let us notice the following about John the Baptist. Notice number one, he was the last of the Old Testament prophets himself, prophesied of to be the forerunner of Christ. We see that in verses 2 and 3. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. It says that John was written of in the prophets. Mark couches the coming Baptist, John, in the scriptures. He points back to the Old Testament and says, here it is. It is before you. Here's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we have John the Baptist, the forerunner, coming before. And this is not out of left field. In fact, this was in the prophets all along. And then Mark goes on to quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse 1. Namely, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths 
straight in their original context, both of those passages are talking about the one who was the owner of the temple, who was coming to dwell amongst the people of Israel, i.e. Jehovah. John the Baptist was the herald of the Messianic King, the Christ, the one who would go before him to prepare Christ's way and make Christ's paths straight. When a king in ancient times would travel, he would send out his heralds and his servants before him. They would make level the paths. They would also make sure that the path on which the king was traveling was safe from robbers, from enemies, from any dangerous terrain. They would map out what was going on. And in the same way, John went before Christ to prepare the hearts of the people of Israel. To prepare the hearts of the people of Israel. To soften them to a reception of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messianic King, the Christ who was to come. He went before Christ to teach the people of Israel of repentance, of faith, of turning away from themselves and to the coming Messiah, the servant of Jehovah, that they might more willingly trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and not merely as some other prophet from Nazareth. So we, as Christians, are heralds. Are we not? We are heralds of Jesus Christ. And we too ought to prepare his way into the hearts of those around us. At all times, be thinking like that. Be tilling the hardened ground of the unregenerate hearts of those among you, whether they be friends, family, co-workers. It matters not. Strangers on the street. Be tilling the hardened ground of the unregenerate hearts. How do you do this? Through acts of love, truly care for these people. And primarily with the preaching of the terrors of the law's demands and the glad tidings of the gospel of Christ. John the Baptist was himself a prophet in line with the Old Testament prophets and indeed can be said to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. John's person and his message testify to this. It says in verse 6 that John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist's lifestyle was one that demonstrated outwardly repentance from lavishness. At a very time when Israel was backslidden into simplicity, into apathy, they did not care. They were under Roman rule, and yet they were just trying to do their thing. They were... Serving themselves and living for themselves, just like in the Old Testament prophets when they were sent. And John comes completely different. He's clothing camel's hair, wearing modest clothing, to say the least. But he comes to them to point them away, even with his outward appearance, from lavish lifestyles, trying to build a kingdom again on earth to what the true substance of faith in Jehovah was. Namely, looking towards, in the simplicity of faith, the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's own Son. Jesus himself testified to John's outward demonstration of this repentance in Matthew 11.8, when Jesus Christ our Lord says, But what went ye out for to see? He's saying this to the Jewish people at the time about John the Baptist. A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So he's saying he was not some political ruler trying to rally people together. 
That's not what you went out to see. No, you went out to see a prophet and more than a prophet, Jesus says. John's outward appearance was modest, to put it lightly, as I said. And he gave no showmanship of himself. Nor gave he any reason for people to think that he was merely preaching for material gain. There's some social media channel. Eric shows it to me sometimes. It's called Preachers and Sneakers. And it goes on, it shows pictures of these preachers with the exact attire they're wearing from their shoes up to their clothes, their jacket, their hat, whatever they're wearing, their glasses. And it lays out the exact price of the things they're wearing. And some of these boys that are up there, these 45-year-old boys, are wearing five, six, seven hundred $700 clothing items on stage preaching, talking more like. About worldly things. Looking like a worldly person. They don't look modest. They're pointing to themselves. And their fresh sneakers. Not to Jesus Christ. And his glory. John the Baptist. Quite different. His clothing echoed back to the prophet Elijah. And demonstrated his continuity. With the rest of the Old Testament prophets. It was said of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8. He was an hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. He had a leather belt. And in like manner, John the Baptist was clothed in camel's hair and also wore a leather belt. This teaches us that we all, and as I just mentioned, especially ministers of the gospel, should be modest in their dress. They should be modest in their dress and give no outward reason why people should be drawn to anything but the gospel itself. You have to keep that in mind when you're getting dressed in the morning. Are people being, going to be looking at me and what I bring to the table? Or is this simply a frame for Jesus Christ and the gospel? Yeah. Again, our living as Christians has to saturate and permeate into every aspect of who we are. It's not just church and that's it. And how many churches have I been to where it's more of a fashion show as people trickle in through the front door before getting their coffee? This does not mean that we have to look stupid, out of date, shabby. But it does mean that our clothing as Christians should not give people a reason to think that the gospel is about anything else than Jesus Christ. Not extravagance, not material gain. John's clothing certainly did not. John's mission was to prepare the people of Israel for the reception of their messianic king. Not to elevate himself in any way whatsoever. That's his person. Next we notice John the Baptist's work also demonstrates that his goal was to point to Jesus Christ. We look at verses 4 and 5. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. John the Baptist's preaching was not some clever or novel message. It was a simple, a plain message. A message which was to the point and congruent with the message of the prophets before him. If a gospel minister, a pastor, a preacher, an evangelist, or you yourself or a friend ever comes to you and has a message that dra- drastically differs from the message of the Christian faith for the past 2,000 years, you know something's wrong. It should be congruent 
with the gospel, with the scriptures, with the testimony of the church throughout the ages. Insofar as it aligns with the scriptures. He simply pointed to Christ. He did not have a novel message. He pointed to Christ and he preached an inward and outward repentance from unbelieving living to believing living. In this way, he was like the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. John preached repentance and baptism. Repentance being a grace of God given to the regenerate soul. A grace that's given to the regenerate soul that creates an inward change of heart that then leads to an outward change of life. Baptism being an outward demonstration thereof. His message was the same as Isaiah's. If you go to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, you'll find this. Quote, Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord Jehovah. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That was the message of Isaiah, and so too of John the Baptist. The outward washing, this baptism, simply testified to the inward repentance from unbelief and sin, as well as the forgiveness of sins that is given to these regenerate people, the forgiveness of sins that had stained their garments, their life, as though crimson. And it also pointed to the washing which takes place, that would wash their garments, their life, their soul, white as snow, in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what this outward demonstration, this baptism that John the Baptist was coming and doing represented. That's why he was doing it. John's preaching echoed that of the Old Testament prophets. And it also foreshadowed that of Jesus Christ himself, who said in chapter 2, verse 17 of the Gospel of Mark, says Jesus, he says, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, or the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. John the Baptist, as a faithful minister, and as all Christians must be and do, pointed away from himself and to Jesus Christ as the chief end of all existence. Read verses 7 and 8 here. And preached, saying, and John preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. John's message was this He must increase, and I must decrease. That's John 3, verse 30. So too, dear believer, must be our heart's cry. Our heart's cry must be, he must increase and I must decrease. Get to a place, pray yourself into fervency, and read the scriptures until you realize, I must have Jesus. What else do we have? We have nothing outside of that. 
Jesus is not the cherry on top of a yuppie's already great life. He is the soul and substance of all existence. He is the very sustenance of our soul. And as the heart, as the deer, animalistically pants after the water, as it's chased down by a lion, so too should our soul pant after Christ, that we might be filled, that our thirst might be quenched. More of our hearts' love be manifested to us, O God. In and through us, we must be like the Apostle Paul, who said in Philippians 1, 21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. John the Baptist did not pretend that his preaching and baptizing was in any way the end in and of itself of his ministry. It wasn't just that he had a great ministry. He was preaching, and that was great. He was baptizing. Well done. But he didn't think that was it. That wasn't the goal. He realized that he was merely pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He stated, quote, There cometh one mightier than I after me, namely one who was unlike a mere prophet like himself, who in fact a mere prophet was not even worthy to stoop down and unloose his sandal straps. One coming who does not merely wash the outward body as a symbol, but indeed one who shall baptize with the Holy Ghost. That's who John was pointing to. That's who we all should be pointing to and looking to. Now, obviously I don't mean to promote either Karl Barth or Second Commandment violations. However, it is illustrative that above the desk in Karl Barth's study hung a picture, a painting of the crucified Jesus Christ. It was by an artist, Matthias Grunewald, titled Grazia Veritas Lumen. What makes this painting illustrative to us is that on the right-hand side of the crucified Jesus was John the Baptist. And he had his hand extended and a strange long finger in the painting pointing up to Jesus Christ. Bart uses as a reminder to himself that it was the duty of the Christian, the theologian, and the preacher to always be pointing to Jesus Christ. The church is to be that finger pointing to Christ of John the Baptist and all that we do. We must follow John the Baptist's example here and let our message be nothing else but Christ and Him crucified. The mightier one who comes after us. We must be pointing to Him. The mightier one who's coming after us. Who does not only testify of Himself as we can. We can testify of Christ. We can preach the truth of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ himself comes and he does not only testify of himself, but he makes that testimony effectual to the hearts of the unregenerate to make them regenerate, to bring men unto salvation. This ministry, this preaching that I'm doing even now is not in and of itself anything. It has to have the unction of the Holy Ghost. It has to. So when we minister to people in our life, if you go door to door and knock doors and evangelize to people, if you preach in the streets, whatever it be that you do as a Christian, even to live the Christian life, you must have Christ. We must have Him. He must increase within us as a spring, as a well of eternal life, welling up 
and we must decrease, for we are nothing else than a dried well. Keep this in mind as you minister. Dear believer, you cannot change the heart. You cannot change the heart of those around you. But Jesus can. And we can point to him. And he will work in and through us to his own glory. If you are faithful to the gospel, God will surely come after you and work mightily unto salvation. You must merely make the path straight by preaching faithfully the truth as it is in Jesus. Additionally, it is good to note that all of the land of Judea, it says, and that of all of they of Jerusalem went out to hear the preaching of John and to be baptized of him. They all went out. He simply preached Christ. That was it. We just laid that out. He preached Christ. And yet large crowds were drawn unto him, just like Whitfield. Just like Whitfield and many of these other great men and women throughout history who have drawn massive crowds through their ministry. He did not need a rock band, props, skits, dances, prophetic art, or a smoke machine to draw in a large crowd. He simply proclaimed the coming Christ. There's one coming. There is one coming. And we have that same message for he will return. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we say. He will return so we can tell others he's coming back. Repent and believe the gospel. That is our message. Prepare the way. You do not need to have some clever tactic. You do not need to have some clever, thought-out apologetic. The gospel itself is the power unto salvation. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If you are nothing but some country bumpkin, and all you can do is read the scripture to somebody, God will use that. God will bless that, and he will honor that. More than some intellectual, thought-out argument. Though he works how and when and however he chooses to work. God will work through our message. Inwardly by the Holy Spirit. What we can only demonstrate outwardly. Let us also remember that although many did come out to John's preaching and his baptism. It is likely that only a few of these people were converted. A big crowd does not equal a successful ministry. It does not. A full church does not mean that there is a full building full of the church. A big crowd does not equal a successful ministry. It is better to have a handful of faithful believers than an entire legion of dead people in the pews. Let us seek, dear church, to be like John the Baptist here. Pointing away from ourselves to Jesus Christ. Trusting not in our gospel presentation, but in the message which he has given us. And trusting that God, as he said he will, will work through that preaching, that proclamation, that truth. Let us humble ourselves, both inwardly and outwardly. Seeking the good of those around us, rather than our own. As the Apostle Paul leads us to do. Making swift and true repentance from sin and gratitude to God. For his grace. That was the longest point. These others will be shorter. Second point this afternoon. Jesus Christ baptized by John in verses 9 through 11. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water. He saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. 
And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John had faithfully tilled the soil of Israel. He prepared the way for the coming Messiah. And now Jesus appears on the scene, probably in the height of John the Baptist's ministry. And Jesus comes to John to partake in baptism. To partake in baptism. Why? Why did Jesus Christ need to be baptized? Well, his own answer in Matthew 3, verse 15 is to fulfill all righteousness. That's why Jesus needed to be baptized. Jesus, being our human representative, needed to fulfill all righteousness, all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. And this is what is called Christ's active obedience. We did a few sermons on that. He actively fulfilled the law on our behalf. Part of this required him to fulfill the ceremonial aspects of the law, i.e. baptism. However, Jesus' baptism was not like any other baptism, and certainly not like any of those that John was doing at that time. Notice, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, the Jordan River. Why is it significant? Why is it significant? I've been there. I've walked into the Jordan River. It's nothing special. But why was it here? Why was it here that Jesus was baptized? Why was it here that John was baptizing? Well, the reason Jesus went there is because that's where John was. But is there more to it than this? Yes, the Jordan River itself symbolizes many things and is integral to Israel's history. Recall, the Lord dried up the Jordan so that Israel could pass over into the Promised Land in Joshua chapter 3. Also, Much of the prophet Elijah's ministry was near or around the Jordan River. And under the prophet Elisha's ministry, a Gentile was healed of leprosy by washing in the Jordan River. What does this show us? What does this demonstrate for us? This shows us the significance and symbolism of the River river Jordan. John the Baptist is the greater Elijah who is baptizing in the Jordan. And through Jesus Christ... The people of God are brought over the dry ground of the Jordan River, not into just simply a physical land and that's it, but into the promised land of eternal life. In Jesus Christ's coming, the Gentiles are brought in among the people of God. They become part of true Israel through faith and God's grace. They're brought into the kingdom of God and they're healed not only of their physical diseases, but of their sins. Also notice, Jesus' baptism is unlike any other, being that he was owned publicly of God in verses 10 and 11. Jesus is fully submerged and then is brought back up out of the water. John had likely done this hundreds, if not thousands of times with the people that came out to him at this point. But now something different happens, something entirely strange and other. It says, and straightway coming up out of the water, He, John, saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon Jesus. This was not some private vision of John or a dream, but it was a public manifestation of God. Jesus is brought up out of the water and the heavens are torn open. The Holy Spirit descends and rests upon him in physical form as a dove. This fulfilled what John the Baptist had previously stated that Jesus Christ's ministry would be one endowed with power, the power of the Holy Spirit. At that moment, we see something else. 
which is possibly even more incredible. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here we have the entire triune Godhead present. The Son, baptized in the river Jordan. The Spirit, descending upon him. And the Father's voice, owning Jesus, not only as a son, but also his ministry as well-pleasing unto him. The triune work of redemption is displayed before our eyes in Jesus' baptism. And this was no mere prophet. This was no mere prophet. But the one of whom the prophets themselves spoke. Of who John the Baptist spoke. The one who would fulfill God's promise of redemption to his people, Israel. The one who would fulfill the first gospel promise made by God to Adam in Genesis 3.15. That Jesus, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of Satan. Sin, Satan, and death, dear believer, will not have the last word over God's people. Rather, the work of God's only begotten Son, His beloved Son, in whom He is well pleased and upon whom His favor rests, will have the last word. The triune God compacted in eternity to do a work of redemption for his people. The Father decreed the salvation. The Son undertook to accomplish the work of salvation. And the Holy Spirit shall apply salvation and has applied it to us in this room. God's people will be saved from all four corners of the earth. This is the start of it. This is the start of that promise being fulfilled in Christ's baptism. Let us realize what this means for us, dear believer. We are God's children, his children. You are God's child, dear believer, in and through your union with Jesus Christ, who was here being baptized. Believe that. Believe that. Even in all of your sin, as we saw with Jonah, even in all of your disobedience, even in all of your pouting and anger, God remains your God because of his son. Not because of your penitence or rubbing ash on your forehead, as I saw some people doing this week. This is what John the Baptist was pointing to. This is what he's pointing to. That Jesus is the one mightier mightier than he. This Jesus, who will baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. This Jesus, who will bring them from death unto life. This is why John the Baptist constantly cried out, as we see in John chapter 1, verse 29. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Now listen carefully, dear believer. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Him, the one who taketh away thy sins. The one who reconciles thee back to thy God. The one who stands before thy Father in heaven interceding on thy behalf, bearing in himself the marks of his crucifixion, standing as though slain before the Father, dear believer, on thy behalf, yet alive forevermore. The one who holds the keys to death and hell. The one who brings up thy soul from the grave, dear believer. The one through whom God looks upon thee. He looks upon thee, dear believer, through Christ his Son. And now he can see thee, O believer, as his child in whom his favor rests. Through Christ's work, 
Beginning here with his baptism. We are made God's children. And he gives to us the Holy Spirit, who has descended upon Jesus here in this passage. The Spirit who beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, Romans 8.16. This same Spirit is here descending upon Jesus, owning his ministry, empowering his ministry. And because of our Jesus, we now can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can confidently call God our Father which is in heaven. We can with assurance know that God looks upon us and says, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Christ has succeeded on our behalf where we have failed. Therefore, notice, third and last point, that Jesus Christ is the greater Adam. The greater Adam. This is verses 12 and 13. And immediately... The Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered unto him. So after the commencement here of his public ministry and this baptism, Jesus then immediately gets to work. He is driven by the Holy Spirit, who would henceforth guide and empower his entire ministry into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. Notice in verse 12, it says that Jesus is in the wilderness, which is the antithesis of the garden where Adam was placed. Adam was placed in the garden, and there given a command by God, which he was to obey. When tempted, Adam sinned and was driven out of the garden into the wilderness. Adam was placed in a garden of perfection, intimacy with God, closeness, blessing. Yet he was cast out of that garden for his sin into what would become a wilderness. But Jesus comes down into a fallen world, into a fallen world that is only wilderness now. And he's come up down into it to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. In order to fulfill this righteousness, he must succeed where the first Adam failed. Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and dwelt among us. He came down into the wilderness of this world, leaving his throne of glory to live and die on behalf of us sinful men in this wilderness. Verse 13, we see that Jesus Christ succeeded where the first Adam failed. Part of his fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf meant that Jesus Christ, the second Adam, had to succeed where the first Adam failed. Failed, namely in the keeping of God's commands, even in the midst of temptation, even in the midst of a sinful world. And he did this by the power of the Holy Spirit. After fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus Christ was tempted by Satan, the seed of Satan, that he would crush. Mark only gives the bare facts of what happened, but he doesn't give any of the details. But we know from Matthew's gospel that Jesus had become hungry after a long period of fasting and that Satan tempted him in three different ways. First, he tempts Jesus to make stones into bread. Why? To satisfy the hunger that he was feeling. To satisfy the flesh. To no longer rely upon God in his fast. Don't trust in your father. Rather, use these stones to make bread and feed yourself. 
How does Jesus respond? He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. Jesus chose to rely upon God's sustaining power instead of the strength of the flesh. The second temptation Jesus endured by Satan was that the devil tempts Jesus to make a public display of himself. Go up on top of the tower, throw yourself off. For you're going to survive. You're the son of God. His angels will bear you up. Become popular. Become well-liked. Demonstrate your great power through some vain exercise. Glorify some act rather than glorify your father. This is what Satan tempts Jesus to do. But he responds, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The third temptation Satan gives him was to worship me and I'll give you all the glory, all the riches, all the honor that is in the world. Tempted to take the easy route to glory. Rather than be glorified in the fulfilling of the work which his father had given him to accomplish. But Jesus doesn't budge. He responds, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Thus we see in these three temptations that Jesus, though given a much more severe temptation than Adam had, yet succeeded where the first Adam failed. Jesus has obtained righteousness in every aspect. Dear believer, perfect righteousness. A righteousness that has no spot, no blemish, no hesitation, no second thought. Perfect righteousness. Learn from this, dear believer, that you have the same Holy Spirit. I often think of this and not enough. The same Holy Spirit that descended as a dove and rested upon Jesus. The same Holy Spirit that drove him into the wilderness and sustained him under the temptation of Satan. The same Holy Spirit by which he did miracles and raised the dead and preached the gospel. That same Holy Spirit he gives to us and is in us and will work through us and for our good and God's glory. That same Holy Spirit is in us to help us overcome temptation. Though imperfectly, because we do not rely on him perfectly. We cannot being in this flesh suit. But it is given to us. We have access to that same power that God in Christ had. Let us trust in Christ our Lord then. Our true prophet. Our true priest. Our true king who has conquered sin, death, Satan, and hell on our behalf, dear believer. Trust not in your own works, but in Christ, the Son of God alone. Let us be like John the Baptist. Point yourself and others to Christ. As the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2, 16 and 19 through 20, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Thus far, we begin our exposition, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, who once again come before thee, we ask, Lord, I ask, O God, that thou would bless this preaching to our hearts. That would empower us and prepare us now in light of who Christ is and what we've heard about him to come to thy table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.